please join me in prayer as we come and listen to the Lord's word. Speak, O Lord, for your children are here to listen. And now may the words that are found on my lips and the meditation in our hearts bring glory to your name. Amen. Now, I think it's quite um, natural to have certain expectations of our leaders, uh, isn't it? So, for example, uh, political leaders, we would expect them to follow certain protocols, uh, to do things in a certain way. And when they don't follow the protocols um, or when they do things differently, it leads us to say, wow, I didn't expect that from him or her. So a personal example for me, coming from a world leader, that would be the Canadian Prime Minister, to be precise. Uh, and this was on uh, the occasion four years ago. Canadian PM Justin Trudeau drinks lime juice and hangs out with locals at Adam Road Food Centre. So I think that was in November 2018. Uh, and true, he may, be stay, he may have been staying at Four Seasons Hotel near Adam Road Hawker Centre. But um, even then, if he really wanted lime juice, or you would have expected him to send out his uh, assistants to go get it, right? Rather than him making the journey all the way down himself and uh, breaking some expectations of how prime ministers should behave. Sorry, I'm hearing myself and an echo here. Is that? Okay, I'll just carry on. Okay. Um, though, of course, as quite a few ladies admitted, it was a nice change of scenery, right? I mean, uh, how often do you find a good-looking Canadian Prime Minister hanging around in your neighbourhood hawker centre, right? <laughs> so this is, would be a light-hearted example of a leader who broke certain expectations. We have also had other leaders who broke expectations and whose actions carried a deeper significance. So, for example, in the movie Invictus, Morgan Freeman plays the role of former South African President Nelson Mandela. Now, in the movie, Mandela had just been released from prison after 26 years of being a political prisoner. He's been voted in as the new president. And as the new president, he's all set, he's all ready to put an end to apartheid and bring a new era to South Africa. Naturally, all the indigenous black Africans were looking forward to this day. Now, on the very first day of office, the head of security, who is an indigenous African himself, he makes a request for more men to help the current team of four people guarding the president. To their total surprise, Mandela signs a memo. And in the memo, he hires four more men. But guess what? Four white Africaners. Furthermore, these Africaners, they were the ones who used to imprison, torture, and even kill the indigenous Africans, those who are anti-apartheid. The head of security storms into Mandela's office asking for an explanation. And Mandela gives his classic explanation. If I can't even trust my life with these men, the Africaners guarding him, what hope is there of building the new Africa based on racial equality. Trudeau and Mandela, two world leaders who broke expectations in terms of how they should be or how they should act. Seen in this light, we could say that the passage before us today, Mark chapter 11 all the way to 12, 17, it's all about Jesus breaking expectations. 
To be precise, Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ, the King that the Jews had been expecting all this time, breaking expectations. Well, of course, in order to know what expectations Jesus broke, we need to know what expectations the Jews had of the Messiah in the first place, right? And the best way to do this would be to quickly learn of the major sects and parties that existed among the Jews of Jesus' day. Because it will be these major sections and parties that contributed to the building up of expectations surrounding the Messiah. And so here at this point, I'm going to read an excerpt from New Testament scholar N.T. Wright. Okay, and um, let me just bring that up for us. Okay. And uh, he, he said this on his blog. I've given us the blog address there, so you could uh, check it up later. Okay, and he says this. If you travel around modern Israel, you'll find archaeological remnants of these sects. First, there is the zealot option. For these zealots, the rule was clear. Say your prayers, sharpen your swords, make yourself holy to fight a holy war, and God will give you a military victory over the hordes of darkness. Second were the Pharisees, the community activists. The more strict a Pharisee you were, the more likely you might be to sympathize with the zealots. Saul of Tarsus is a good example. In their earlier days, the Pharisees had sometimes been able to uh, ally themselves with the Jewish leaders. But in Jesus' day, they had no political position. They were more like a pressure group. Their aim went like this. When ejected from the halls of power, start a grassroots campaign to get your vision for Israel adopted by the masses. Tell everyone to have their own ritual bath if they can. Have your bones buried in osry boxes waiting for resurrection. If we can be obedient enough, get pure enough, keep Torah most accurately, then maybe the son of David will come. Third, the quietest and ultimately dualist option taken by the writers of the Dead Sea Scrolls at Qumran. Separate yourself from the wicked world. Say your prayers and wait for God to do whatever God is going to do. Fourth, the compromise option taken by the Sadducees. Keep the temple going, offer sacrifices pleasing to God, maintain the peace, get along with your political bosses as well as you can, do as well out of it as you can, and hope that God will somehow validate it all. So put together, you could say that the expectations of the Jews during Second Temple Judaism, that is during the days of uh, Jesus, okay, um, the expectations would have run something like this. Right? Firstly, a king who would be a political deliverer. A priest who would come and cleanse the temple. And lastly, a prophet who would endorse the authority of the religious leaders then. So seen in this light, Mark 11 to 12, 17 is really about Jesus coming as the Messiah and the Christ that he is but breaking all these expectations. So Jesus comes as the Messiah. He comes as a king who will not be a political deliverer, but instead one who brings peace by giving up his life. Mark 11 verses 1 to 11. Two, he comes as a priest who will not come and cleanse the temple, but instead one who would judge and replace the temple 
with himself. Mark 11, verses 12 to 25. And lastly, he comes as a prophet who would not endorse the authority of the religious leaders, but one who would challenge and condemn their authority. Mark eleven twenty-seven to 12, 17. I will cover each point in turn with us. So let's begin. First point then. A king who will not be a political deliverer, but one who brings peace by giving up his life. We begin with verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem. Now Jesus and his followers are entering Jerusalem for the Passover feast. That was really an annual pilgrimage for the Jews. So if I can just show you a slide here, you can see that's Jerusalem there. And uh, during the time nearing the Passover feast, all the, Jew all the pilgrims will make their way into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So the crowds gathering in Jerusalem daily would increase exponentially during this period. So it really was not uncommon for Jewish pilgrims to Jerusalem to go into Jerusalem during the day and then to retreat to the nearby villages for the evening. Okay, it was a very common thing. Yeah? It's a bit like uh, if you recall the good old days where we used to go overseas for holidays. Okay? And uh, friends, be, be patient. Those days are coming again soon, hopefully. Okay? Sometimes you find that what you'll do is you'll go into the city and see the sights during the day, right? And then what you do is after that is you retreat to the outskirts of the city where accommodation is cheaper and where it's a bit easier. Um, that's what Jesus and his disciples were doing as they went into Jerusalem for the Passover, going into Jerusalem during the day and then re retreating to Bethany in the evenings. But more than just informing us that Jesus and his disciples are going into Jerusalem for the annual pilgrimage to celebrate the Passover, Jerusalem serves as a decisive location for Jesus in terms of why he came and what he came to do. And for Mark, the gospel writer, Jerusalem serves as a pivotal landmark as he tells us the story or as he tells us the gospel of Jesus the Christ. Okay? So I'm going to show you a table here, and this table is actually a breakdown of Mark's gospel, one way of looking at Mark's gospel. So if you look, Mark's gospel can be broken down to three main sections. In the first section, the second row, okay, it's from Mark 1, 1 to 8, 26. The geographical location centers around Galilee, the Capernaum, the Sea of Galilee. Okay? And in their Christological identifications, Mark, the writer tells you straight away, Mark 1, 1, this is the gospel about Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Right? And the central question that revolves around this section is, who is this man? So we find different, the crowds asking this question, we find the disciples asking this question, and that is the question that Mark, the gospel writer, poses to us, the reader. Okay? Then the second section, Mark 8, 27, it comes after Peter confesses you are the Christ. Okay? And where's the location? Caesarea Philippi, en route to Jerusalem. The Christological identification there comes from Peter, Mark 8, 29, you are the Christ. Yeah? And in that way, the central question that is asked um, in Peter's confession, you are the Christ, it answers the earlier question, who is this man? Yeah? And with that, the question now changes to what kind of Christ is he? And the answer is provided by the three passion predictions of Jesus. Can we see that? 
and then Mark 11, 1, all the way to 16, 8, the last section of Mark's gospel, guess where? We are in Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem. And the Christological identification, the climax comes in the cry of the Roman centurion, Mark 15, 39. Surely this man was the Son of God. And the answer is affirmed in 1539. Who is this man? What kind of Christ is he? These two questions, the answers are affirmed by the centurion. Surely this man was the Son of God. And that leads into the question that's left for us as the readers of Mark's Gospel. Who is this Christ that we are going to proclaim? Yeah? So that's an overview of Mark's Gospel for us, uh, just to help us to understand where we are as we head into the third section. Okay, thanks, yeah, I can turn it off. We also have to keep in mind the passion, um, yeah, so as we step into Mark 11, and as we read that Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, it's meant to be showing that Jesus is one step closer towards fulfilling and showing what kind of Christ he will be. Now, you and I also have to keep in mind the passion predictions to help us understand what seems to be Jesus' very detailed and almost supernatural instructions to the disciples that we see in verses 2 to 6, isn't it? Instructions regarding the making of preparations to go into Jerusalem. It's so detailed, right, that it feels a bit uncanny, right? It's almost like supernatural kind of feel. Yeah. Now, whether it's supernatural foreknowledge on the part of Jesus or whether it's just very detailed planning, foreplanning in advance, that's not the point. Rather, the point is Mark, the Gospel writer, is trying to remind us that even as Jesus is about to go into Jerusalem, even as the passion predictions are about to be fulfilled, even as we are about to read and see Jesus in a seemingly passive role where people only do things to him, in chapter 14 onwards, Mark wants to remind us that Jesus is still sovereign as in, and is in control over all this. He is no mere victim of circumstances. Even as Jesus is about to undergo his passion as he enters Jerusalem, he is every step of the way in control. So when we look at Jesus' detailed instructions, the bulk of it concerns a colt, the young of a donkey. So what is happening here? You and I ask, right? Why is there so much fuss over a donkey? You could say that the only other occasion a donkey got so much attention was in the animated movie Shrek, right? Donkey, you know? <laughs> I think the significance is to show us that when you shows itself when you keep the Old Testament scriptures in mind, especially the Old Testament passage, Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 to 10. And let me show that for us. Right? Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a coat, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the better bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Combined together, this picture of Jesus getting the donkey in such a providential manner, plus him sitting on this young donkey and entering Jerusalem, all adds up to convey the message. O Jerusalem, here is your king. 
Behold, your Messiah. This is the Messiah spoken of in Zechariah 9, who comes to bring peace to Jerusalem. And not only to Jerusalem, but to the nations, to the ends of the earth. Thank you. You can turn the slide off. Yeah. And judging from the cries of the people, most likely they were the fellow pilgrims as Jesus enters Jerusalem. Their cries show that they recognized and were calling upon Jesus as their Messiah, their anointed King and Saviour. Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These two are taken from Psalm 118, verses 25 to 26. It is a cry for Yahweh to send his Saviour to save his people. And verse 10, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. This proclamation shows that the people recognize Jesus as someone who has come from the line of David to bring in the kingdom of David. Together, their cries and shouts reveal their expectations of the Messiah. He will come into his holy city and be their glorious political deliverer who will clear the city of the Romans and in that way restore back the kingdom of our forefather, David. Of course, the deep irony remains. Here indeed is the Messiah entering the very city that he has come to bring peace. But yet the way that he brings peace is by having violence done to him through his death on the cross. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And really, in a way, like blind Bartimaeus, whom we read from the previous chapter, Mark 10, 47, where he called out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Remember? Remember blind Bartimaeus calling out to Jesus correctly, identifying him correctly as the son of David? But guess what? He still needed his eyesight restored, isn't it? Right? So in the same way that people may have called out to Jesus, they may have identified him correctly as the son of David, the Messiah here in Mark 11. But they, like blind Bartimaeus, still needed their spiritual eyes open to see what kind of Messiah Jesus was. Verse 11, Jesus goes to the temple, looks around at everything, but as it was late, decides to go back to Bethany with the disciples. Mark does not tell us what Jesus looks at, but he leaves that to the next section where we will find another expectation the Jews had of the Messiah unraveled before their very eyes. So here, point two. A priest will not come and cleanse the temple, but one who will judge and replace the temple with himself. The next day, Jesus sets off from Bethany. Along the way, Mark records for us the incident of the fig tree. Jesus was hungry. He sees a leafy fig tree. He expected fruit. He found nothing, and as a result, Jesus cursed the fig tree. And as we read this section, we cannot help but ask, right, why did Jesus take it out on the fig tree? I mean, it's not the tree's fault, right? Especially when the tree was not in the season for bearing fruit. Yeah, it's almost like, um, like, like, like Pastor Jeff. You all know Pastor Jeff is uh, crazy over durians, right? Yeah, uh, now, now after his... Uh, condition, heart condition. I'm not too sure whether you can eat that many durians anymore. Uh, but uh, um, 
It's just like, almost like Pastor Jeff going to the durian market, okay? And then he discovers there's no durians. And then he says, by my authority, I will close all the shops here. No more selling of durians. But you can't blame the durian shop because he went in March and March is not the season for durians, right? Right? So it's almost like that. See, the key to, am I correct? March is not the season for durians, right? Yeah. Okay, tell I'm not really a durian lover, but it's okay, yeah. Now, the key to understanding this strange event is to really look carefully at what came before and what comes after. The verse that came before, verse 11, Jesus went to the temple, looked around, saw everything, but did nothing because it was too late. Okay? Then it's followed by this incident of the cursing of the fig tree. And straight away after that, it's followed by a record of Jesus' visit to the temple and his actions there. And then it's followed again by another account which returns back to this fig tree. So all of this indicates to us that the incident of the cursing of the fig tree is not meant to be read on its own. It's meant to be read in light of what forms the middle of this section, Jesus' visit to the temple and his actions in the temple. For those of us who have been following the pulpit series in Mark's Gospel, we have realized by now that this is a favorite writing technique that Mark employs. Huh? So uh, in our uh, Bible study group, we call it the Markenberger. Okay? Wow. Making you feel very hungry, eh? yeah? I purposely chose the nicest looking burger that I can find, okay? Uh, so you see down there, the, 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 the patty, the bread patty at the top is the fig tree incident, part one, verses 12 to 14. Then the meat patty, you know, where all the good ingredients are. That's the clearing of the temple, verses 15 to 19. And then you have the fig tree incident again, part 2, verses 20 to 25, okay? And just like how when you eat this burger, the delight is really in the beef patty itself, right? In this case, uh, yeah, you can turn it off, yeah. I think it's too distracting, yeah. In this case, what Jesus does with the fig tree here and what he has to say in the later section about the withered fig tree, it all takes its reference and finds its meaning from the center section, Jesus' actions in the temple. In other words, the fig tree becomes in this passage a symbolism for the temple. In particular, what the temple stood for in terms of the Israelites' worship of God and their relationship with God. And what Jesus does with the fig tree becomes a symbolism of what he's going to do with the entire temple system. So the big question associated with Jesus' actions in the temple is this one. Was Jesus cleansing the temple or was he judging the temple? There is a difference between the two. In cleansing the temple, you will be purifying the temple, but still keeping the overall structure or the overall institution, right? And so in other words, reform. Huh? But when you judge the temple, it carries connotations of doing away with and totally replacing the structure and institution altogether. So which one is it? I think it's a second action on view. Jesus was judging the temple. The way that Jesus carries out his actions, what he says, it all alludes and refers to the Old Testament scriptures. And here, two passages are mainly on view, actually three. Um, so the first one is Zechariah 14.20, 
Um, but I just want to refer us to the last line there. On that day, there will no longer be a Canaanite or merchant in the house of the Lord Almighty. Okay? Um, Isaiah 56 is the second passage. And in there, God calls upon the Israelites to maintain justice, to do what is right. right? And then in verse 6, he says, And foreigners, uh, they will be able to come to the temple. And verse 7 says, um, God's house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Okay? And of course, the third passage is Jeremiah 7. Here is where um, the Israelites back in Jeremiah's day were thinking that all they needed to do was to run to the temple and seek refuge there and then just say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, and they'll be protected. Okay? And God says through Jeremiah that he's going to change all of that. Yeah, because why? They have made the temple to become a den of robbers. Yeah? So it's mainly from these three passages. Thank you, you can turn that off. Um, Zechariah 14, Isaiah 56, Jeremiah 7, they all reveal a consistent theme. Israelite worship of her God had become totally corrupt. The Jews think that worship is simply about carrying out the rituals and sacrifices faithfully. As long as they do it, as long as they are in the temple of the Lord and claim upon the name of the temple, they are okay. But God reveals that true worship is about the inner heart, righteousness and holiness in our hearts and our lives. That's the point that Jesus is making here. The Jews had totally forsaken God. They have left him in their hearts. And even though the hustle and the bustle of the temple worship activity carries on, Jesus was going to judge all of this and judge it by replacing the entire temple system of worship of God and relationship with God. The mention of the fig tree again in verse 20 confirms this view. The fig tree had withered to its roots. See, I'm not a green fingers kind of person, uh, but my limited self-understanding tells me that if the roots don't wither, uh, there is still a chance of reviving the plant. Okay? I mean, the leaves may look a little bit dry and droopy, you know, but, but if the roots are, uh, are not withered, um, um, yeah, then there's a chance of reviving the plant, right? But if the roots are withered or if they rot, okay, and here's the interesting thing, sometimes they can rot from overwatering and the water gets trapped in the soil, huh? Then I'm told that if the roots are withered away or if they rot, then the plant is a goner. Yeah? Am I right, Pastor Joe? You see around? Ah, I'm correct, yeah. Okay. Pastor Joe is the is the Mr. Green Fingers. Yeah. Mr. Green Fingers, Mr. Coffee Fingers, and I don't know what else. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Here in this case, the fig tree was withered from the roots. It can't be revived. It can only be replaced. That's what Jesus was going to do. Replace the temple and the entire existing system of worship for the Jews. That's why Peter responds in total surprise and shock at the fact that the very fig tree Jesus had cursed yesterday had withered so fast. Now, I don't think Peter understood what was happening or that the fig tree was a symbol for Israel's temple worship. But nonetheless, Jesus turns it around into a teaching point. Have faith in God. God can indeed do the unthinkable. He can indeed judge the temple. God can indeed say to this mountain, and by this mountain, I think Jesus was referring to the physical mountain, 
that the temple stood upon. God can say to the temple mount, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. God can do the unthinkable in the Jewish minds back then, judge the temple. At the same time, God in judging the temple, he can also replace it. And Jesus here calls upon the Jews to believe and have faith that God can do just that. God will provide another temple to replace the existing one, one in whom and through whom our prayers will still be heard and forgiveness received. Jesus was saying that in this new temple that God will raise up, that is in himself, prayers will still be heard and forgiveness of sins found. And the very fact that we just sang that, 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 that Chinese worship song, huh? uh, even though I was telling the music team that they, they, they sang the Chinese with um, uh, um, MGS and ACS accents. Uh, yeah, but uh, sorry, sorry, that's just, yeah. Um, they sang a song, but the very singing of their song is a fulfillment of this passage. Because we pray, we pray to God through Jesus, our Lord. Yeah, that's a fulfillment of this passage here, where prayer and forgiveness is still possible. Yeah? Point three, a prophet who will not endorse the authority of the religious leaders, but one who will challenge and condemn their authority. In the third section of the passage we have before us today, Jesus dismantles yet another Jewish expectation, this time in particular an expectation of the Jewish religious leaders. As we have heard from N.T. Wright, the religious leaders in Jesus' day believed that by their personal religious righteousness, their scrupulous keeping of the Jewish law, their carrying on of the traditional temple rituals, all of this would hasten the coming of the kingdom of God. That's why they had no qualms about imposing these righteous religious standards on the rest of the community. And they frowned upon anyone who acted contrary to the standards they were promoting. All this led them to also believe that when the Messiah comes, one thing the Messiah would do is that the Messiah would come and endorse and commend their authority. Right? Jesus comes and shatters this expectation of death. He not only challenges their authority, he actually condemns it. Very quickly then. Mark eleven twenty seven, Jesus and his disciples came to Jerusalem again to the temple. And the religious leaders come and question Jesus on what authority he claims upon to do the things he had been doing. This could refer to the recent fiasco at the temple or to all that Jesus had been doing so far. And in what seems like an evasive move, Jesus directs their question to a question of his. What about John the Baptist's authority? Where did it come from? Right? It seems like an evasive move, right? It seems like the kind of things that, you're, uh, that, that I would do in, in, in class when a student asks me a very difficult question and I direct that question. Huh? It almost seems like that, yeah. Um, but but Jesus' question was actually a very simple one. It calls for a very simple and obvious answer. John the Baptist's authority, where did it come from? And the simple answer is, from God, obviously. Duh. It's a simple answer. But this was an answer the religious leaders could not give. Or maybe they did not want to give. If they were to give this answer, Jesus could easily turn it around and then ask them, so why didn't you believe in John the Baptist and all that he did? 
it was very clear that the religious leaders in Jesus' day didn't approve. They didn't like what John the Baptist was doing. But at the same time, the religious leaders didn't dare to say what they truly thought, for that would incur the disapproval and displeasure of the common people back then, who obviously saw that John the Baptist was a man of God and a man from God. So they gave the safest answer that they could, which is, don't know. Huh? But only to have Jesus reply them, in that case, I will also not tell you by what authority I do these things. You see, Jesus, in directing his answer, in redirecting his answer to John the Baptist, Jesus was actually not evading the question. Instead, he was answering the religious leader's question by correlating his own authority to John the Baptist's authority. If it was obvious that John the Baptist's authority was from God, then it would have been equally obvious that Jesus' authority was similarly from God. Because John the Baptist, in the things he did and said, remember, he pointed to Jesus who was coming after him. Jesus did the same things that John the Baptist did, except we could say to a more powerful degree, Jesus, in fact, did even greater things than John the Baptist. So the answer is clear. If John the Baptist's authority was from God, then it was clear that Jesus' authority was similarly from God. But if the religious leaders rejected John the Baptist, then they would clearly have rejected Jesus too. So in wanting to question the credibility of Jesus' authority, the religious leaders ended up exposing the incredibility of their own authority in that they will fail to see what is clearly of God and from God himself. And finally, in the turning of the tables, Jesus tells a parable, the famous parable of the wicked tenants. And remember, parables are for those who have ears to hear, let them hear. And hear the parable the religious leaders did. Huh? For once, they understood the parable. They knew that Jesus was referring to the vineyard as Israel and that they were the tenants. They knew that the servants referred to the Old Testament prophets right up to the most recent prophet they had rejected, John the Baptist. They knew that Jesus was referring to himself as the son. And finally, this was the part they probably hated the most. They knew that Jesus was saying that God was going to come and remove them from their position and place. Here was Jesus turning upside down their expectations from one where they expected to receive commendation and endorsement of their religious authority from the Messiah to one where Jesus comes and challenges and condemns their authority. So here we have it. Expectations of the Messiah by the Jews of Jesus' day. A king who will be a political deliverer, a priest who will come and cleanse the temple, and a prophet who will endorse the authority of the religious leaders. Yet when Jesus the Messiah does come, and when he does enter into Jerusalem, his city, he overturns all those expectations. He comes as a king who is not a political deliverer, but one who brings peace by giving up his life. He comes not to cleanse the temple, but in fact to judge and replace the temple with himself. 
And he comes not to commend or endorse the authority of the religious leaders, but instead he came to challenge and condemn their authority. In the face of someone who overturns all these expectations, what was the response of the Jews, especially the religious leaders? Mark eleven eighteen tells us, the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Mark 12, 12 tells us they were seeking to arrest him. See, when Jesus comes and when he upsets the status quo, when he comes and challenges and overturns their expectations, then they would rather protect their status quo. They would rather have that undisturbed. They would rather remove the one causing the disturbance even if the one bringing about the change is God himself. So those were the expectations of Jesus the Messiah back then. What about now? What contemporary expectations do we have of Jesus that perhaps Mark's gospel has been revealing to us and more than that, challenging us? Because one way of looking at things is this. Since Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ in Mark 8.29, Mark chapters 8 to 10, they have been focused on what it means to follow Jesus as the Christ, even as Jesus heads towards Jerusalem. Simple way of putting it is Mark 8 to 10. The road to Jerusalem for Jesus is equal to the road to discipleship for us, for the readers of Mark's Gospel, chapters 8 to 10. It is, it is Mark telling us what it means to follow Jesus, even as Jesus has just issued the call in 834, if anyone would come after me. Right? If that is so, then Mark 8 to 10 is meant to contain lessons on what it means to follow Jesus. I'd like to share at least one personal lesson for myself. This comes from the passage in Mark 10.35, where James and John request to sit at the right and the left hand of Jesus when he comes in his glory. Remember that passage, right? For James and John, they were probably thinking of the time where Jesus would enter Jerusalem. He would reclaim the city and establish God's kingdom there. When that happens, they want to be on the right and the left hand of Jesus. In other words, they carried with them the expectation that Jesus, the Messiah, is here to bring greatness and make us great. I think that is the expectation that we similarly carry with us in our contemporary Christian culture today. At least for our context here in Singapore, where we have largely inherited our Christian culture from the West. There is an expectation that Jesus here is here to bring greatness and make us great, make his church great, make his people great. And one spillover effect of this culture of expecting greatness is that we start to think and we start to expect greatness in our ministries, in our lives, in our service. We start to desire greatness. We start to cast these expectations on ourselves 
and then we cast it onto others as well. We begin to uphold greatness as an indicator that our ministry is blessed or favoured by the Lord. If I'm walking close with the Lord, if I'm favoured by Him, then wouldn't God bless my ministry and make my work and make it great? Right? That's why I was very ministered by this reminder from a Gospel Coalition article um, that was forwarded to me by my wife. Yeah? It's along a slightly different line, but it's still related. And the title of the article is Aim to be Unremarkable. Yeah? Um, I want, after I read it, I was wondering whether is that my wife's way of hinting to me that uh, she married an unremarkable husband. <laughs> yeah. just, just joking there. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll show us the article. And here, uh, there's a little um, QR code. You can scan it and you can just read along with me. And I'll read portions of it. It's, a, it's quite a short article, okay? Yeah, in there. Uh, but, but a very pertinent one, yeah. D.A. Carson has said that the list of qualifications for elders is remarkable for being unremarkable. They are the same traits that should be present in the life of every believer. We need more unremarkable Christians. Huh? We tend to focus on remarkable people, and then the writer goes on to give example of Charles Spurgeon. Okay? In there. The problem isn't that some Christians are extraordinarily gifted. The problem is when we start to value extraordinary gifts over ordinary faithfulness. Our culture operates according to the myth of the great person model of leadership. An extraordinarily gifted person is the solution to most problems. What every struggling organisation needs is a great leader who by virtue of extraordinary qualities will be able to turn that organisation around. When imported into the church, we long for great leaders. We look for those with big personalities and leadership gifts who can turn our churches around. We are drawn to those who can work a crowd, wow an audience and build a platform. I praise God for leaders like that who are faithful but really there aren't that many. That's what makes this model of leadership so dangerous. It's not easy to replace an extraordinary leader. Besides, we can start to rely too much on the leader's charisma and gifts rather than what matters most. Without disparaging great leaders, I'd much rather have ordinary ones who are growing in godliness, serving faithfully, loving and praying for those they're called to serve, and who understand the need for the giftedness of others because they know they are not the complete package. In a way, pastors should aim to be replaceable. Every pastor is an interim pastor. Every pastor will eventually step aside. The goal should be for that church to continue to thrive because the church isn't built around that pastor's giftedness. Right? Instead, it's built on the ordinary things that all churches are called to do. Wise pastors who are extraordinarily gifted know how to keep the emphasis on these ordinary things rather than on their extraordinary gifts. Pastors, don't despair if you feel ordinary. Ask God to grow your character. Regularly review the qualifications for elders and ask God to sanctify you. Give your ministry your best efforts, but never buy into the belief that your ordinariness stands in the way of God using you. Extraordinarily gifted pastors. Don't build your ministry around your extraordinary gifts. Build your ministry around what every pastor is called to do. Make yourself replaceable. Raise up others who can succeed you. Churches, 
Don't buy into the myth of the great person model of leadership. If you have pastors and elders who meet the qualifications of Scripture, rejoice. God has blessed you. Christian, value faithfulness over giftedness. Our Father measures greatness differently than the world does. Ask God to shift the attention away from who you are to His glory alone. Serve faithfully and stay out of the way. Keep the focus where it belongs. Aim to be unremarkable. When I read that, that was a piercing reminder for me. How Jesus comes and confronts us regarding some of the wrong expectations that we have of what He has come to do in our lives and our ministries. For me, at least, it was really this culture of expecting and in that way overvaluing greatness that I needed to be challenged anew. God looks for faithfulness and unremarkableness rather than greatness or giftedness. So help me, Lord, by your Spirit, not to desire to grow in giftedness or greatness, but to grow in a kind of unremarkable faithfulness. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we hear in your word today how even as your son enters Jerusalem, his city, how he came, and there were so many expectations surrounding who the Messiah uh, is and what he came to do, and how the Lord Jesus came and really overturned all of that. In the same way, Lord, each of us have our own expectations of, of, of who Jesus is, what he has come to do in our lives, and what it means to follow him. Um, for some of us, it might be really this, this, this culture of expecting greatness uh, that, that we have cast onto the Lord himself. Yeah. For others, it might be um, the expectation that, that, that Jesus hasn't come to demand too much from my life, that perhaps he has just come to adjust one or two little small things, but, but not to overhaul my entire life. Whatever it is, Lord, we pray that your Spirit may grant us the grace, the courage, the strength, the comfort to hear your word and to enable us to keep following after Jesus even as he heads towards the cross. We thank you and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.